worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing frequencies open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and if God wanted us to have three nostrils, he'd have given us three index fingers. I'm joined on this episode by Alex Knapp. Alex is a writer and associate editor for Science and Games at Forbes.com, covering topics like science, technology, and culture. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about The Most Toys, the 22nd episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Batman, Spider-Man, Doctor Who, Scrooge McDuck, any hero is nothing without a horde of villains to contend with, and the heroes of Star Trek are no exception. The best villains in fiction are dark reflections of the characters that we love, and their very existence is often a confutation of the principles that a hero stands for. They are the nihilistic yet plausible answer to the question that the hero's existence asks. And even though the near-perfect future Trek represents is free from many of our modern wants, it may never be free from those who want that much more. And really, why would we want it to be? But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Alex, whenever I have a new guest on the show, I always ask about their backstory. How did you first become a Star Trek fan? Um, I honestly can't remember not being a Star Trek fan. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I watched it in syndication uh, growing up. I, um, I, I still have very strong memories of watching the premiere of Next Generation uh, when I was eight years old mm. and, you know, watched it the whole way through, watched DS9 the whole way through, watched Voyager, uh, caught up on Enterprise on Netflix. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, seeing all the movies in the theaters that I was able to, uh, I just uh, have just always loved Star Trek. Well, I think it's great that your enthusiasm carried you through to, to see all of the series. I know for myself, I have a similar kind of backstory. And for me, just the uh, pressures of life and just getting older uh, caused me to kind of drop away so that I haven't really seen the entirety of Voyager. And so far, like I've seen more for this show, but my Enterprise watching is uh, is not great. There's a lot of I've seen all the kind of big hits, but otherwise I haven't seen the whole series. You know, it was hard to watch when it was on, um, just because it was on it. You know, like a, a weird time, and mm. uh, you know, I remember you know when it came out, and I feel like you know uh, even more so than other Trek series, it, it took a little bit longer to find itself. I think. Yeah. And yeah. it was just kind of just getting going when it got canceled. <laughs> they were definitely, they were also taking on a different, uh, difficult proposition, which was to do something radically different. Like what do we even do at this point? Uh, prequel series set far, far, you know, into the past of the Federation. And so, um, I don't know. Like I said, you know, I like a lot of what I've seen, but there were some ones that weren't so great too. <laughs> Well, yes, that's, that, that's true. But the, the foot finding episodes. Yes, uh, Next Generation certainly has has those episodes. Oh, too. absolutely, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, we've talked about a few on this show for sure. Uh, you originally got your start uh, in the law as a lawyer, isn't that right? Uh, why did That's you decide right. to Why did you decide to transition to writing? Uh, well, I was always kind of writing, um, you know, in the background. And uh, uh, the thing about the law is, uh, I, I kind of came into it by default, uh, mm. like a lot of lawyers do. I came out of college not really knowing uh, what I wanted to do, but you know. I liked arguing about politics, and I did well on the LSAT, so I went to law school. Sure. Um, and uh, it just the work didn't speak to me, and and so when I had an opportunity to transition careers, I I just jumped at it. So. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I have a couple friends who studied law, and one in particular who got his degree in constitutional law, and this was you know in the early mid '90s, and he did it. Kind of in the same way, enjoyed law, enjoyed politics. And people asked, why are you getting it in constitutional law? Like, what are you going to do with that? And he's like, I don't really know. And I don't, he didn't really do much with it then. But now with, you know, disputed elections and sort of all the things that are going on, I feel like he probably could do okay if he had stuck yeah. with it up to this point uh, in our political reality. But yeah, well, that's, that's interesting. Uh, as a science writer and edi editor for Forbes, uh, you got to have your finger on the pulse of many different fields. So do you mind if I ask you about some current topics in science and technology? Sure. Uh, first Absolutely. off, First off, every billionaire worth his salt seems to have a rocket company these days. Do you think that Corporate interest in space travel is the right way forward, or should we be embarrassed to meet the Vulcans in a Starbucks branded rocket? <laughs> you know that that's a great question. Um, I I think that uh, uh, the answer is kind of uh, both. Um, uh, you know what the uh, the billionaires are, are doing in space um, is really uh, in a lot of ways just geared towards. Uh, their own businesses. So, right. you know, um, I, I mean, there, there's definitely a love and enthusiasm for it, but you know, the way most people make money in space is, uh, is communications and internet satellites and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, staying connected you know, that's still the primary driver of revenue. Um, and, uh, you know, private industry has always had a role in, uh, even the government run space programs, you know, um, Boeing and Lockheed Martin and, you know, those big defense contractors like that were, you know, back there building rockets in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, now there's just some startups who want to do the same thing right. uh, like SpaceX. Um, I think that government is probably always going to be at the at the uh, forefront of uh, exploration and things like that. I, I doubt there'll be a, you know, Starbucks branded rocket meeting aliens, um, uh, unless it's by accident, uh, just because, you know, there's no money in exploration. Um, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. uh, I, I think that the government uh, is, is it, you know, if it were up to me, uh, the government would be doing the exploration and then building the infrastructure that would kind of allow uh, businesses and and colleges and you know research groups and things like that to more cheaply do business in space and and uh you know in the past few years nasa's actually been working towards that and uh, uh I, I think a lot of people don't know this but uh there, there are laws and programs in place for um uh, private businesses and and even you know colleges and schools to get this help 
on on building you know space projects and and yeah. things like that and you know uh on the international space station there are um you know lab experiments uh, that the astronauts run it's a, it's a big part of their day and a lot of those lab experiments are are not just for businesses but uh uh, for you know, even elementary schools, uh, you know, sure. when when they're able to fundraise for it and things like that. So, I, I think at best it's a it's a partnership, um, okay. and uh, and and I think it it can be a fruitful one if it's uh, if it's done right. Hopefully that's that's true, and the future can you know sort of uh, cut the difference between um, the totally uh, desirable but utopic uh, you know Star Trek future and something sure. that's totally cynical and business driven like the Expanse. We can maybe right. get yes. right down the middle of that. <laughs> well, even in the you know the original series, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of Kirk's time was spent cleaning up uh, after like mining companies and things like right, that that, right, that yeah. got into trouble. Yeah. So. <laughs> a lot of a lot of colonies that were there to support, uh, you know, like mining operations, a lot of robot freighters and things like right. that. Yeah. Uh, everybody's concerned about data safety these days. It seems like there's a story every day about some company losing millions of logins or social security numbers. Um, is this just an inherent problem of our digital world or should companies face severe penalties when they fail to protect consumer data? You know, it, it, it's interesting um, because a, a big part of the problem is because the Internet was never intended to convey private information. And so uh, it was intended just to, to communicate and, you know, be, between scientists and researchers and other things. So uh, all of the protocols, all of the infrastructure, everything by default is open. Mm -hmm. And um, it has just, I think, been a challenge uh, to get the these things locked down to get them secure. Uh, it, it's more expensive in, in large part because it was never designed to be locked down. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I definitely think that there should be more protection and, and more uh, ways to provide for security. Uh, but I think that um, regulations and, and things like that need to uh, operate from that understanding and uh, you know, as new infrastructure gets built out and, and there's new technologies um, going up in terms of satellites and going up in terms of uh, uh, new kinds of laser communications and, and, and quantum encrypted communications and, and some cool things like that, mm. um, I, I would hope that security is starting to be baked into the infrastructure. Um, you see that a little bit. A lot of websites default to https now and, and other things so yeah. uh, i think it's getting there um but but it's it, a lot of it just stems from how the internet developed yeah i think a big part of it is a public awareness as well um sure I, mean, I don't i don't worry too much about my data but like the whole dna testing kit fad is really <laughs> worrying to me like you know you, nobody has time to read the you know ten page long uh, terms of service or, or whatever, and so they don't realize in some cases their data is be, being used for things that they don't know about. Um, there's good effects, you know. There was a story recently about how um, a testing kit company's data helped catch like the Golden State Killer, uh, right. so that's good. But you know, if people probably didn't know that their data was being shared with the FBI and law enforcement agencies, which is Somewhat troubling. Yeah, one of the most amazing things about that to me is, you know, at least Facebook is free. You're you're paying the DNA customers yeah. to take your data. Yeah, and, here, and, take and, it and this money. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, um, you know, there, there's an interesting company that's been started up by uh, uh, George Church, who is uh, is a, a 
really brilliant geneticist at Harvard, um, and and he started a, a company uh, for genomics information. Um, but they pay you for your <laughs> for your okay. DNA, right. um, and uh, you know they they have a lot of security kind of baked into. Uh, how they're doing it to to keep people's information private, uh, but still have it be of use for you know research and and uh, and uh, developing treatments for disease and things like that. So yeah. I I think that's a cool uh, way to do it. Yeah. It, well, that reminds me of um, the teens that got like two hundred bucks so Facebook could like take all of their data <laughs> <laughs> or whatever that uh, most recent story was. Uh, of course, then you look at Star Trek and and. You know, yeah. You look at the look at the. Uh, maybe this is just Starfleet. You know, maybe it's not like this elsewhere in the Federation. But, but you know, uh, you watch an episode of Next Generation, and it's like you need to know where someone is. You ask the computer. Yes. You know, and Riker's yeah. always on holodeck three. Yeah. Well. And, yeah. Um, of course. <laughs> and and uh, I, the episode that uh, that that comes before this. Uh, before the most toys, uh, hollow pursuits. Uh, Barkley is able to make his own hologram figures of people on the crew. That just doesn't seem like yeah. a good thing. Data security <laughs> is a nightmare in their universe. Right. We've talked about that on the show before. Yeah. Uh, hey, climate change. We're doing all the fun ones. Uh, speaking of public awareness, uh, what's it going to take to get people, or at least the people that count, on board finally with climate change? And what are we looking at if we can't? I, I would say, to, to be blunt about it, they need a... Uh, a way to make money off of it. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this is actually one thing that, that's been interesting uh, um, is that solar power has just gotten so much cheaper uh, mm. over the past 10 years. Wind power has gotten cheaper. Um, there are concepts for nuclear energy that could be scalable and cheaper, um, I think, if people didn't attach the stigma to it. Mm. Um Really, I, I think that uh, there is a market demand for uh, cleaner power. I, I think people want it. Um, I, I think what it will take is probably to be cheaper than fossil fuels. Um, that's my cynical take. Okay. It's kind <laughs> so, of like the space exploration thing. There's There's got to be some money in it there. That's right. <laughs> Okay, well, I can deal with that. Well, okay, good job. I put you through your paces, but you came out okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's get back into Star Trek. Uh, you wrote an article uh, recently, or actually a little while ago, that I really mm. enjoyed uh, called Five Leadership Lessons from Captain Kirk. And you make a point early in the article that uh, Kirk always seems to be remembered as a devil-may-care rule-breaker, but he's uh, actually described um, by Gary Mitchell, a former schoolmate, as being a walking stack of books when he was at the Academy. And on my show, I'm always trying to counter what I call the myth of the sexy Kirk, that he is some <laughs> reckless Lothario. And I try to emphasize that you know Kirk was always about his duty and following the rules, at least in the original series. So mm -hmm. I guess my question is, uh, first, how does it feel to be so right about something? It it feels amazing, um, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I feel like time has caught up to me on that one. Uh, that article I wrote almost seven years ago, actually, yeah. and and since then, um, I know that uh, uh, you know on on tour there have been essays about the myth of Kirk and Strange Horizons had a had a great essay on Kirk drift mm -hmm. and how you yes. know it doesn't line up. Um, there is a uh, I, I think tumble. About uh, feminist Kirk, um, which which one thing I I didn't mention in that article, but it's like if you if you're looking for the sexist misogynist jerk in in the original series, it's Spock. 
Um, <laughs> Interesting. Okay. All right. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, seriously, if you there there are episodes, uh, uh, particularly a mock time, but but uh, a number of others where he is much more dismissive of, of women and doesn't take them seriously uh, <laughs> in a way that Kirk, you know, uh, really does. And, and uh, it, it's a really interesting uh, dichotomy, the, the way that uh, the pop culture perception has evolved. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I lay it on the films, uh, the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, he steals the Enterprise and <laughs> blows it up and, and whatnot. Right. But, but that, that idea of drift is really interesting that when it comes time to reboot the films, he's suddenly an apple munching, you know, irresponsible asshole. Right. So, although to be fair to the films, that might be how Kirk was if he grew up uh, in an abusive sure. home in a small town in Iowa where he didn't have anything better to do. But as opposed, to Beastie Boys, right. Right. As opposed to, you know, the, the TOS Kirk who, you know, is a survivor of a genocide and probably spent much of his adolescence dealing with PTSD. So. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> And then his brother dies, and that's not a big deal, I guess. Yeah, Yeah. right. Uh, Why did you choose this specific episode, The Most Toys, to discuss today? I I, I chose it for a couple of reasons. Um, One being that a a couple of the episodes I would have picked before, someone had already grabbed. Oh. Uh, So. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But also, this is my favorite Data episode. Uh, And I love Data as a character, and and, and I think this is a, a really singular performance um, both for the writing of the character and also the acting. Well, I would absolutely agree, and I can't wait to talk about it. Uh, we are talking about the Next Gen episode, The Most Toys. It is the 22nd episode of the third season, Star Trek The Next Generation. It first aired on May 7th of 1990, and it was written by Sherry Goodhearts. In addition to The Most Toys, Goodhearts also wrote the TNG episode Night Terrors and co-wrote the story for Violations. She was also a writing staff intern for part of TNG's third season. Uh, She also wrote for other TV shows like Gargoyles, Phantom 2040, and Young Hercules. And she wrote Dragonheart, A New Beginning, which was a sequel to the film Dragonheart. This episode was directed by Timothy Bond. He also directed the episode The Vengeance Factor for TNG, and he directed episodes of Friday the 13th, the series for Paramount. He's also directed many other TV series. He directed the 1994 TV movie Tech War, Tech Lab, starring William Shatner and based on characters from Shatner's Tech War series of novels. The star date for this episode is 4387.2. Near assignment, Alex, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of The Most Toys. Sure, in The Most Toys... Data finds himself once again defending his personhood, only instead of against Starfleet, where he can be rescued by Picard's pretty speeches, he's instead captured by Saul Rubinek's most evil and campy character and has to defend his personhood at the point of a Verante disruptor. That is perfect, yes. Uh, I have to wonder if Picard had been present, if any speech could have moved the tiny cold heart of Kivas Fajo. I'm, I'm thinking no. <laughs> I'm thinking no as well. Uh, maybe he could trade him for something, uh, right. you know, that, that fish in his office or something. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. The title of this episode comes from the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins, an epigram that is often attributed, perhaps apocryphally, to Malcolm Forbes, businessman and publisher of Forbes magazine, who's known for his lavish lifestyle and his many possessions, like his art collection, yachts, and Fabergé eggs. Have you heard that fact? Uh, you know, I have heard that fact. So, okay. uh, and just checking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, makes sense. 
The ill-fated Type 15 shuttle pod seen in this episode is named Pike after Captain Christopher Pike, of course, former captain of the USS Enterprise. Uh, there's no word on whether a ruptured baffle plate contributed to its destruction. There are a lot of interesting props in Fajo's collection in this episode. The lapling creature is a hand puppet that was created by series makeup supervisor Michael Westmore. The 1962 Roger Maris Topps card is, of course, very valuable as Maris hit 61 home runs in the previous year to break Babe Ruth's 1927 record. A mint version of the card, if one exists, is worth $20,000 today. The recreation of Salvador Dali's The Persistence of Memory seen in the episode was painted by Elaine Sokoloff, a scenic and graphic artist for the show. Data's Shakespeare book and his hologram of Tasha Yar appear again here, first seen in The Measure of a Man. Most of the props and costumes from this episode, like many items from TNG and other Trek productions, were sold through the online memorabilia auction site It's a Wrap. Presumably, Brent Spiner was spared from the auction block. Uh, the studio model of Fajo's craft, the Jovis, was sold at the 40 Years of Star Trek, the collection auction at Christie's in New York in 2006, and it went for $4,800. Let's talk about the guest stars for this episode, and thereby hangs a tale, to borrow from Data's book of Shakespeare. And I have to admit that before researching this episode for this episode of my show, uh, I didn't know any of this. Uh, very interesting uh, and somewhat tragic facts. Um, Saul Rubinek, of course, plays the traitor Kivas Fajo in the episode, but he wasn't the first choice for the role. In fact, he joined the production several days into the shoot. Fajo was originally played by British actor David Rappaport, and several days of filming on the episode had been completed before Rappaport attempted suicide over a weekend break from filming. The role was quickly recast with Rubinek, who turned out to be a former schoolmate of director Timothy Bond. Uh, Rubinek was apparently in L.A. to shoot the Bonfire of the Vanities, and he was a Trek fan, and he had reportedly called Bond to see if he could come see some of the TNG sets. And I guess Bond asked him if he really wanted to see the sets up close. Uh, so that all worked out. Um, Rappaport survived that suicide attempt, but he was later successful in taking his own life just days before The Most Toys debuted on TV in May of 1990. He's probably best known as uh, Randall, the leader of the bandits and Time Bandits. Um, his untimely death was cited actually by Terry Gilliam in his decision to not pursue a sequel to Time Bandits, uh, as he had planned for the sequel to feature Rappaport's character heavily. He also starred in the 1986 series The Wizard, I don't know if you remember this one. Um, it, it was about an inventor who uses gadgets and toys to fight evil. And I remember The Wizard being on in 1986, and I remember it being a pretty good show. He, um, you know, he would fight like evil spies, you know, sort of comically bad, you know, Russian foreign villains. And he'd do it like remote control cars, you know, that would explode or, or little drones and stuff like that. And uh, Gates McFadden was in the pilot episode, too. So it was like a it was like a proto MacGyver kind of. You sort of, yeah. Um, do you remember the movie FX? Yes. I think it was movie. kind of it was sort of a spin on that too. Yeah. Okay. Like, Rappaport had a, a chondroplastic dwarfism, and as a little person, his and the production's take on the character of Faja was very different from what uh, actually aired. Um, they tried to make him seem very sinister and dangerous despite his small stature. And you can actually see his portrayal of Fajo in the unused footage from the episode, which was uh, put on the TNG Season 3 Blu-ray as a special feature. So it's unfortunate uh, what happened and that Rappaport wasn't able to continue in the role. But as his replacement, Saul Rubinek delivers what I feel to be, and it seems like you agree, one of the most chilling and indelible villains uh, on Next Gen. Uh, Rubinek has been a ubiquitous face in film and television since his debut in the late 70s, and he's appeared in such films as Against All Odds, Wall Street, uh, the aforementioned Bonfire of the Vanities, 
True Romance, Unforgiven, Nixon. You can see him uh, right now on TV in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs on Netflix. And he's also been on Curb Your Enthusiasm and Stargate. Uh, and he plays, of course, Special Agent in Charge Artie Nielsen on Warehouse 13. Uh, the name of the character, Fajo, comes from Lolita Fajo, a script coordinator for TNG. And she was also a pre-production coordinator for TNG, DS9, and Voyager. And as for the other guest stars in the episode, Jane Daly appears in the episode as Varia. Daly got her start as a model, and she worked in theater before moving to Hollywood. She made a number of film and television appearances in the 80s and 90s and aughts on shows like Nip Tuck, Felicity, and The X-Files. And she played the mother of Michelle Monaghan's character in Mission Impossible 3 another Paramount production, and Nehemiah Persoff plays Paler Toff in the episode. This is the three-nostriled man, of course. Persoff got his start in Broadway in the 1940s, and he appeared in small roles in films like On the Waterfront and The Naked City. He's made over 200 TV guest appearances in, in his career and has appeared in such films as Some Like It Hot, The Last Temptation of Christ, Twins, and he also provided the voice of Papa Mouskowitz in An American Tale. He's 99 now, so he's retired from acting, uh, but he paints in watercolors and he sells his work online. Um, and maybe uh, on special occasions, he puts the gold ribbon on his head. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such an interesting uh, – you can tell that the makeup department was like, oh, what the hell? Let's, uh, what if he had a nose in the middle of his head or like a, or three nostrils? And then, I don't know, let's give it a little flair. Let's, uh, let's thread a ribbon through there. I don't know how that works. but And the giant monocle. That's, yeah, and a giant uh, monocle. Yeah, of course, he's an appraiser. Yes, right. <laughs> that all follows. Which uh, uh, it, it is well known to anyone who played the uh, Star Trek customizable card game back in the day. Because I think Paylor Toff, the Paylor Toff card was in like everybody's deck. Because it lets you <laughs> it lets you get a, a card you'd already used out of your discard pile. Okay, and all right. So it was a, a really popular <laughs> common card. And uh, the, the photo, if, if I'm remembering correctly... Uh, is Palortov peering through that giant monocle? He's looking through so it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it wasn't a, a rare; it was like a common. Oh yeah. So and and like it literally, I think you know it was it was one of those cards that you just slotted out a spot in your deck for. You like you knew you would have at least one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do, what did they call the discard pile? There's always a fancy name for it. Like it's the graveyard in Magic or whatever. Did they have a, a fancy name for it? Oh boy, it has been like 15 years <laughs> since I played that game. But I understand. <laughs> as I recall, I think it was literally, literally just the discard pile. I don't okay. think it had a fancy. Well, it's not very creative. Yeah. I, well. I'm trying to remember if the. Uh, I played the uh, Star Wars collectible card game. Um, don't yeah. judge me. And I, they probably called no, no, it the same, Trash same Compactor. Company. Yeah, yeah, Decipher. Right, right. Yep. So. Is it too late for me to start a Decipher podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think probably, but, you know, I would listen. <laughs> a very limited uh, listenership, but I think they'd be strong. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's talk specifically about the episode, um, but also about villains. Uh, I, they're an important part of any story, and Trek can Trek has a great share of villains, or at least I guess maybe you'd call them adversaries in Trek. Um, there are some definitely um, completely evil and possibly irredeemable characters, but many characters or races in Trek. Um, become allies after a while. That's one of the good things about Trek is that over a long enough period of time and a long enough period of negotiation and hopefully mutual understanding, the villains become your allies. And I think making the Klingons just another race in the galaxy instead of the perennial villains was one of the best moves that TNG ever made. And um, who knows, maybe in some future series we'll 
see that the Borg have found a way to live in equilibrium with the other races in the Milky Way. That, that assumes we'll get a sequel show. <laughs> yeah, so. well, yeah, there you go. I mean, and uh, it looks like, you know, on the Picard series that the Romulans will be involved um, with the destruction of Romulus. I think the Romulans have kind of been pushed to the negotiating table, uh, mm-hmm. Star Trek Six style. So right. maybe on the Giorgio show, we'll find out that Section 31 has been blowing up home planets <laughs> in order to get races to right. the uh, negotiating table. But yeah, that would be um, that'd be anti-Trek. Uh, I, right. I, I, know, I think. Or, or just because Giorgio is hungry, you know. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but you really got to watch season two of Discovery. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're you're stepping all over it, but yeah, you're gonna love it. Um, what do you think makes a really good Trek villain? Um, you know, there there are different kinds of of great Trek villains, and I, I think in the same way that there's great villains just in uh, literature generally. Um, I, I think the the best Trek villains are the ones that are almost uh, alien, um, not alien in the sense of different, but just almost incomprehensible mm-hmm. uh, for the reasons why they do things. And um, I, I think one, I think Kivas Fajo honestly falls into that category uh, for Data, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he doesn't behave in a way that. Uh, uh, you know, anything like the way data wants to be, um, right. Yeah. As, as a person, uh, and one thing I, you know, love about Rubenick's performance. And, you know, I was thinking about this as I watched the episode again today to prepare for this podcast is he is like what the Ferengi were supposed to be. <laughs> okay. I, I, I think that, yeah. when, when, when the Ferengi were written, um, you know, Gene Roddenberry's conception is that they were, you know, basically 19th century, uh, you know, robber barons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and instead we got like weird hissing energy whips and furs and, you know, it, it didn't work. Right. Um, but but Kivas Fajo, the, the way he's portrayed with basically just, you know, kind of greed and dominion as his driving, you know, force, uh, I, I, I think is is closer to the conception of the Ferengi and, and uh, shares a lot of qualities of, of some of the Ferengi and, and particu- particularly the bad Ferengi you see in, in DS9. So. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, good villains really stand as a as a foil usually, you know, for the hero. Like even somebody like Lore is like Data on a quest mm. For self-understanding and uh, self-realization, he's just going about it in a totally different way with no ethical subroutines to stop him. And we right. can we can understand and identify 21st century humans uh, with the economic security that the Ferengi are after, whereas mm-hmm. the Federation has all the benefits of having unlimited energy and free technology. And so to them, it's like, well, why, are, why are you like this? Like, I don't understand right. why it's so important to get currency. And it's... Fajo is just so he's such an exception or he's just so strange because he's just so nihilistic and selfish um even like the aforementioned Ferengi still need a bureaucracy they still need an economy right. to work in right. but it's it's almost like he he just wants all the stuff and mm-hmm. he doesn't care who dies or who gets hurt to get it and then he's gonna just hide out somewhere or <laughs> he's just gonna fly right. around and just keep all his stuff he's got he's got his baseball card he's got his dolly from a writing perspective I what I really love about the character um, is that when people try to write nihilist 
characters like that, they, they tend to do a bad job of it by, you know, basically painting them as, you know, nihilists, which, which I think the Coen brothers did an awesome job parodying in The Big Lebowski. You know, we are nihilists. We believe in nothing. Right. Um, whereas Fajo, like, he's a nihilist. He really just cares about himself. And there's just a lot of points where rather than try to philosophically argue with Data, he's just more like, eh, don't care. Yeah, right, right. Another nihilist villain, or at least one who becomes it eventually and possibly insane that comes to mind is is Dukat, you know, in, at, mm-hmm. at the end of DS9, before he's almost an antihero, or at least he can kind of pull off the we're not so different speech if he decided mm-hmm. to give it. But by the end, he's just literally trying to destroy Bajor because he can't have it. Uh, right. And so it's it's hard to it's hard to identify with somebody like that. They become you know, just a serial villain at that point. But even somebody like Khan, you can understand, well, the guy got stranded <laughs> on a planet right. that blew up and he just wants to make the guy pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe Kirk himself thinks that, oh, yeah, maybe I've got it coming. Maybe I've lived a little too long. So right. I just think it's funny that with him being so diabolical, he is at the same time just so fascinating. And so much of that is, of course, as you mentioned, it's down to a Ruminex performance which becomes even more exceptional and fascinating when you realize that he had to get that together probably over a weekend. Like they probably (laughs) FedExed him the script and it's like, okay, see you Monday. I don't know what you're going to do. We're going to put a thing under your nose and boom, you're an alien and just get out there. And he wasn't really like a TV guy at this time. Um, You know, he was a movie guy. He had been in a bunch of movies in the 80s. Um, the bonfire of the vanities might have helped put a stop to that, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, so his his friend Ford, uh, the director, was uh, afraid that he wouldn't even do it, and to have him come in and go, okay, I, I guess I can see what's going on here. I'm going to add my own uh, sort of je ne sais quoi to it, and his kind of giggling and hopping around, and the 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 clicks, you know, when he's like when he's testing data, yes. <laughs> it's just like it's the type of thing that you don't normally see on TNG with everybody's. Right received pronunciation and their and their you know metered sort of uh, demeanor yeah it, it's great and uh if, if i recall correctly too i think he'd done theater with brent spiner before oh, oh, really okay so <laughs> sure um so i you know I, I think they knew each other and uh it's just the way their performances um play off each other is just uh just really astonishing um and uh you know with with uh, spiner doing his data you know, thing and just contrasting that with just how flamboyantly evil uh, Rubinek played the character. Um, I, it's just a great uh, dichotomy, and, and yet they still have like a great chemistry uh, when they're together. It's just, just really, uh, I think they elevated each other, and they're both great actors in the first place. So I have to wonder if Fajo has ever tried to kidnap anybody before. Do you know what I mean? Like he's, he's really good at it and uh, almost gets away with it. I can't imagine this was the first time. Yeah. (laughs) The episode pretty strongly implies that Fajo's crew are like his slaves. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I I think you're right that it's not the first time. And, you know, part of Varya's arc, I think is realizing, you know, she thought she'd, gotten in good with him and you know maybe she started out lowly but now she was you know she had respect and all that and that realization that you know to Fajo 
she not only was she another item in his collection, she was an expendable one. You know, there, there's always another Varia. He, yeah, he says. Right. Yeah. So maybe it's like a serial killer in that apparently they sort of evolve or they progress. So you're torturing cats, and then you you know right. work your way up to somebody vulnerable, and mm-hmm. so I because I just feel like when he is trading arguments uh, with data, it just seems practiced. Like I'm right. sure that he's argued with people over, you know, acquiring things or over deals before, but he's already got all this stuff about, oh, well, you're part of the military and, you know, and you're part of Starfleet, you know, what are your accomplishments? You know, aren't you a soldier? Have you killed anybody? And he's just got all these things ready to go. And of course it's interesting. It, it's like, he doesn't respect data, but also he takes the time to make all these arguments like if he really right. doesn't care if it was like like Maddox in and this mm-hmm. is this episode is like you mentioned it's like measure of a man too basically um Maddox doesn't think data is alive and so therefore he doesn't really respect him but Fajo goes to all this trouble of putting a living being in his menagerie a sentient living being not a lulu puppet mm-hmm. and and yet he's able to have these solipsistic conversations with him and it's just like <laughs> Wow, you're, that's evil. Uh, you're evil guy in your little tights. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's almost, you know, in some respects, like he kind of wanted Data, not just because he was, you know, the only sentient android, um, you know, that, that they knew about then, uh, but because he kind of wanted an audience. <laughs> ah, there you go. It's um, like his own, yeah, like his he, he's putting on a show and he wants... Um, a part of the collection that can admire the collection. That's some serial killer shit. <laughs> he knew data so well, you know, like you mentioned, ha- you know, having all this information about him, yeah. uh, you-, you have to imagine he knows about, you know, his hearing before Starfleet. I'm sure that made that, you know, the wire reports. Sure. So, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so it, I, it, it's, I think he took a perverse pleasure, uh, in in treating him uh, to, in dehumanizing data, uh, mm. in part because of that court ruling. Yeah, so, at, at least in my head, he does. So. And that's well, that's good headcanon, I think. Um, it's uh, yeah, I like the mine is the serial killer thing. I'm going to stick onto that. <laughs> but uh, and that's that's a sore spot for data, insofar as he can have sore spots. You know, his personhood, and that's another thing is that like good villains always challenge the hero's convictions. And I don't think that we as an audience really believe that any of Fajo's facile arguments about the military or Starfleet are going to sway Data. But his disregard of Data's existence, and not only that, but his accomplishments, make us wonder if maybe Data's got the right idea. Maybe Data should just kill him before something worse happens. So I I think what's interesting um, about this to me is that, you know, I am, I realize there several camps on this but i've always been in the camp that the data has uh, always been developing emotions um okay mm-hmm. and that he didn't quite know it himself because he was so fixated on having human-like emotions he didn't recognize his own android-like emotions mm-hmm. um and i think this particular this uh this episode in particular is a centerpiece uh for that and, you know, um, I, I've had uh, uh, a com- conversations with, uh, with people before, and some people really hate the end of this episode uh, because they're like, you know, Data had like X, Y, and Z ways out uh, <laughs> without 
killing Fajo. And, you know, my, my take on all of this, and I, I think the, the episode supports this, is that Data was um, not just, I mean, he had certainly, I more rationalized in his brain uh, that, that Kibis Fajo was deadly and he couldn't, you know, let him walk around. But I think he was also um, pissed. And okay. I don't know that he knew he was pissed. He was kind of pissed in the way that Vulcans get pissed, where they rationalize their pettiness, you know, right, and right. come up with some sort of logical <laughs> trap for it. I, right. I think Data kind of did that in some of the same ways. But I think, you know, he had befriended Varya and uh, seeing kind of the the almost, I, I you know, for lack of a better word, orgasmic delight that that Fajo had in killing her. Um, I think fundamentally made him angry. Um, and you know, the, the end scene, uh, where, where data comes down and, uh, just says, you know, I don't feel pleasure. I'm just an Android. He clearly does feel pleasure in that moment or else why would he be down there to confront him in the first place? Yeah. That's I I I love that theory and that would be a real long uh a real long con for the uh, writers to uh to start this in season 3 but I'm sure that that was on their mind the idea of his you know developing personality and possibly emotions but I can't think of except to just see and confirm that he is you know finally locked up but right. yeah it does it does seem like a taunt I got to say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an inflectionless taunt Right. He's not doing a, a, a pee-pee dance, but it's uh, it's pretty close. Um, it's What's so uh, funny to me is, you know, you mentioned like, oh, well, you know, there's like one, two, three ways that he could get out of that. Right. Kind of. <laughs> I mean, right. I guess I could, you know, Fajo's plan is pretty good as plans go. It, I mean, it he's, is. He's ready. He's ready for the FAA investigation, you know, after right. the shuttle blows up. <laughs> you know, he's created this plan where the Enterprise can't, commit to the investigation because they have to run off to solve a problem way far away that he created. And he even made a profit by selling the solution to the problem that he created. So the Ferengis are thumbs up there. But the follow-up isn't great. He immediately goes back to just, I guess maybe he's just acting casual, but he goes right back to the space lanes and just living his life. He probably should have like gone to just some remote planet and just, you know, went to ground until like, you know, the the storm blew over. But maybe he underestimated the capabilities of the crew of the Enterprise. And Jordy uh, sleeping yeah. in his clothes, <laughs> thinking about the problem. Well, they already look like pajamas. You might as well. Sleep yeah, in right. Just take your uh, so, pips off, and you're good to go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I mean, but I, I, I think the episode pretty strongly implies that, but for Jordy obsessing about it, they would have just gone on and not figured it out. Yeah. So. Right. And not so much as a thank you at the end from Data. Right. But <laughs> that's off screen. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like Data with unlimited. Uh, well, theoretically unlimited patience and an unlimited lifespan. Um, I mean, he could have just acquiesced to Fajo's demands until some later moment where Fajo's guard is down or he slips up and makes you know some kind of mistake and allows him to escape. Right. But of course, Data being unexperienced emotionally, you know, normally if Picard was in the situation, oh hell, if Kirk was in the situation, right. you know, he would have seduced Varya, got one of those <laughs> disruptors, and we'd, he would have been fine. But with Data's lack of, you know, emotional intelligence, he's just. I I love the fact that 
Fajo, he wakes up. Fajo explains the whole thing to him. And Data's like, okay, well, I'm going to escape. So see ya. <laughs> <laughs> and of course that doesn't work because no episode, but yeah, right. he doesn't, he doesn't really understand. And of course he tries passive, uh, literally passive resistance when he mm-hmm. just sort of freezes up. Um, but of course that uh, puts Varya's life in danger. So yeah, you have to wonder like you would with any uh, episode, how it would play it out differently. Um, but it's definitely the perfect trap for our emotionally stunted Android data. Right. No, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, you could even make the argument that maybe data really didn't have any other choice. Um, but I like to think there was some emotionally motivated reasoning uh, behind that. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's plausible. So, I it's mean, you know, it's, it's a few episodes after he absorbed uh, Lol's neural net. So mm-hmm. even if you want to, uh, a technological explanation. You you could say he started to develop emotions because of law. Um, and uh, I, I kind of think that might have been the intent of the writers. But, you know, I, I uh, one thing that I, I will complain about, the whole idea of the emotion chip, I think, wrecked Data's uh, emotional character journey. Yeah. So um, it, it kept really swinging wildly after that and it was very inconsistent um after brothers and and definitely on into the movies and 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 things like that so yeah well they had a brain drain at that point you know with the sort of (laughs) scattering of the writing crew but yeah it's it's tough because you want pinocchio to become a boy at some point and so if he does you know there's no more story and of course they're caught in this we have to continue to tell these stories forever so and then we got, of course, the abrupt end that we did with Data. That's the one right. thing for me. I don't know if it's possible, but some kind of follow-up or like a better ending for the story of Data would be what I would want out of the Picard series if they're <laughs> open to that. You know, load him into a another body. He had a backup copy or something like that. Or just give us some sort of shot at seeing a, a sort of a better resolution for his story. Yeah. Uh, I just really just prefer to think that nemesis never happened um, yeah or just or just retcon it out of existence yeah right <laughs> a little time travel we're good yeah <laughs> i i, I want to get some like some confirmation you know from the powers that be that data like is a person you know or that we finally accepted that you know even in nemesis which the existence of nemesis is still in debate but uh you've got everybody standing around you've got his friends and his crewmates who are sort of toasting and remembering him but you never this is this episode is sort of a a follow-up to measure of a man we get later episodes uh like you mentioned brothers where he develops more but it's still like the last time starfleet really checked in on this all they ruled was is that they didn't rule that he was human they just ruled that they didn't own him so right. if, you know, the powers that be like if the Enterprise couldn't figure this out and they had to call the big guns in, what would they be coming to do? Like, can Data be kidnapped? Is he being kidnapped if he's not a person? Um, right. Would they be would Starfleet intervene to retrieve, you know, it's one of its officers or just important material? Uh, that That's an interesting perspective. Um, and, you know, it, th- this again, uh, boy, I keep coming back to offspring in part because I almost picked that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, um, but uh, but, you know, they they dealt with that legal issue again. And uh, and and interestingly enough, they they resolve it by killing laws. So you never get you never right. do find out yep. uh, how that would resolve itself. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, no, 
it's a, a great question and and actually one of uh one of the things that i didn't remember until i uh had read it or watched this episode again um was when uh you know wesley and uh jordy are you know raiding data stuff and um they come across his medals and Georgia just makes this offhand comment of you know not bad for a walking pile of circuitry <laughs> yeah. something like that yeah. and i'm just like the way LeVar Burton delivered the line was really weird because I couldn't tell if he was being affectionate or right. dismissive <laughs> yeah. or what. And, 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 and I think, I mean, I think you have to imagine it was, you know, meant out of affection because, you know, half the episode is him trying to get his bro back. Yeah. But, uh, but the way the line delivery was just really, it was just really off. And I didn't <laughs> like what, so it just, it, it stood out. Um, I, I think in part because it was an episode about, you know, data asserting his personhood. So, yeah, they blew the other takes that they had to go with that one. So there's no choice. <laughs> right. Uh, I was just thinking of speaking of villains or villains uh, with the potential to be friends. Uh, the defector, of course, is an episode um, that I really oh, like from, yes. from season three. And on the subject of guest stars, um, Sarek is also um, another great guest star great performance the episode that surrounds it i'm not super like thrilled about when like right. jordy and uh and wes are fighting over a hot tub about something right. stupid <laughs> about how jordy can't get any uh get any play or whatever but uh right. but having uh mark lenard on and then of course having um the amazing performance uh, by patrick stewart um there's been great example probably top five um uh I just forgot his name. Uh, Saul Rubinek, um, in terms of like best guest stars, right. um, but there's been a lot of great guest stars, and I I have nothing to say against um, like the performances of the regulars on Star Trek. I mean, they're solid. Um, they're they're all accomplished, talented actors, but when they bring somebody in with a certain gravitas or or like an actor that doesn't do a lot of genre work, mm -hmm. uh, it just seems to add something extra. Like people like David Warner. Right. Well, I guess, to be fair, does does do genre work um, or Gene Simmons or, you know, or Louise Fletcher, you know, on DS9. It's like, what is Nurse Ratch ah. doing on this show? <laughs> but then she turns out She's to be so great one on of the best villains. Show. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or uh, like David Ogden Steers or or Frank Langella. <laughs> like right. Frank Langella is going to be the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, it's Skeletor it's... is is uh, <laughs> trying to take over Bajor. It's perfect. <laughs> Well, and, and if you're if you're talking great guest stars in season three, uh, there's also Tony Todd in Sons oh, yeah. of the Father, yeah, who uh, is just awesome as Kern. And then when he you know comes back, um, and, and really you know we're talking about Data's character arc in this episode, but but uh, uh, you know Sons of the Father also kicks off really the beginning of Worf's character arc, yeah, um, and. Uh, that that goes all the way to the last season of DS9 in spectacular fashion. Um, Worf is like I, I I can't imagine historians of the future, uh, you know, the 25th century. Um, you know, you have the Enterprise, which which has Picard, um, who uh, apparently is only remembered for destroying the Tot. Uh I imagine Riker's probably remembered. You know, single-handedly stopping the Borg from destroying the Federation, um, but then there's also Worf, who's like the pivotal figure of Klingon politics in the 24th century. Yeah. So, so it's uh, you know, uh, I, I wonder if if Data's even like uh, 
with his uh, inglorious end is just kind of a footnote in the history. Like, oh, they also had an android. He was kind of neat. Yeah, possibly, <laughs> possibly. Um, if, and I'm just, this is my headcanon, I'm just projecting forward to what I think might be uh, in future iterations of the series, but if there is a Federation Romulan um, alliance or pact, you know, it should mm-hmm. be called like the Data Pact or something like that because he's really the guy who, uh, you know, I guess he wasn't really threatening Romulus. They, you know, they were coming for Earth or whatever, but still right. he helped win the war that hopefully started... Um, a um an alliance between them until of course um the planet blew up i just remembered that romulus blew up um <laughs> they got a lot of work cut out for them let's just say that. yes they do and they don't have spock to help them yeah uh is there anything left uh unsaid anything that you have to say still about this episode the most toys i you know the other thing i i don't know if we dove into it a whole lot but i really did appreciate um uh, the kind of whimsical aspects of Data's character that it showed. And really, the whole episode, if it was... Uh, it, it's a great episode, but even if it was total garbage, if it sold the scene of him trying to imitate the Mona Lisa's <laughs> yeah. smile, yeah, it, it would be totally, totally worth it. It's uh, so, so. <laughs> and it's such a part of... I mean, it's just his character, but it's also a part of like not being able to feel fear or overly feel concern. Like when Captain Picard is captured, he's like talking to the prisoners. Can we eat mm-hmm. these urinal cakes? You know, the, the right. things he's trying to figure out. And Data's just like, well, I've probably got a few hours before this guy comes back. Maybe right. I can just look at the Mona Lisa for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but which again, I think speaks to, you know, his, his, uh, you know, uh, emotional character. You know, he's curious. He, he's interested in the world around him. Um, you know, uh, if you sometimes talk to people, this episode is like, you know, Data should have like destroyed the baseball card until Fajo <laughs> let him go or no. something like that. I'm like, yeah. but like Data wouldn't do that because right. he would understand, you know, that these things are, are, you know, precious artifacts that should be, you know, returned where they belong and they're a part of history. And like, you know, this is that would not be in keeping, you know, that would be less in keeping with Data's character than him, you know, trying to murder Kivas Fajo. So, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's still, it's part of that great dichotomy between the characters because Fajo, right. all he cares about is, is this stuff. Data doesn't really care about material stuff. I mean, he's totally selfless, but he, he understands that other people care about that stuff. Right. And so he, you know, even without that attachment, he wouldn't really do that. And that's really what I think, if you want to believe, and... I do. I know you do. And Data, uh, Brett Spiner and um, the writer of uh, Good Hearts, the writer of the episode, both really wanted to have that scene where he does pull the trigger at the end. And I think the producers actually put that line in where he's like, oh, maybe something happened to it. Um, Even in that decision, he's still he's trying to weigh the needs of the many over the needs of the one. Sure. Yeah. It's a a great line delivery. Uh, And the the way he looks at Riker. Um, I think it's the first time he bluffed Riker. Is uh, ah, there you go. So, yeah. <laughs> and it, which does lead us to you know my favorite part uh, of uh, Time Zero, which is not a great set of episodes, but it is a fun set of episodes. Yes. And I, I love that the whole Enterprise crew is completely useless in the past, whereas Data. <laughs> turned his comm badge into a fortune by suckering people at poker. Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I like when they uh, go back in time and 
Captain Picard's first instinct is like, let's uh, let's put on a play. Come on, everybody. Uh, we're players. You feel like we all like Captain Picard, but maybe he's that guy who you give him like one extra hour at the company picnic and he's got everybody doing something really stupid and playing games. And you're just like, oh, boy. Yeah. Hey, I got to go. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds about right. Should have had kids. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, <laughs> let's let's uh, speaking of uh, fathers uh, and kids, uh, let's talk about my space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? So this has evolved for me uh, over <laughs> over the years. Um, you know, there uh, there was a point in my life I would have said Cisco. There was a point in my life I would have said Picard, especially when I was a kid. Um, as I've gotten older, uh, I Kirk has has like circled around to being my favorite. Uh, I, I think he is the most all-around interesting character, and uh, and uh, you know we we talked about the the Kirk drift and and all that. I, I think um, in, in some ways maybe uh, uh, defending him, his character against uh, some of the, the caricature ha- has given me more fondness for him. Uh, but uh, but a few years back, I, I decided to rewatch you know all of Star Trek uh, start to finish and really just came out of a TOS loving Kirk um, and, and really just thinking, A, that uh, the parodies of William Shatner's acting are, are overblown. Because uh, I, I think a lot of times he's really subtle uh, mm-hmm. with Kirk. Yeah. Um, and, and then, but really just appreciate his character and, and his curiosity and his uh, ethics and his passion for exploration and and uh, relationship with Spock and McCoy and, and the whole nine yards. So uh, I'm going to kick it old school and say Kirk. Sounds good to me. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you will receive a commission in the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Oh, uh, I'm going to have to go with uh, stellar cartography is the mm-hmm. coolest room and you seem to be at the least risk for being, you know, killed by the uh, villain of the week so <laughs> yeah i'd imagine that it's it's ironic that it would be uh deep in the ship i imagine it's within the superstructure <laughs> of the ship and yet you're supposed to be studying the stars but i guess i, I didn't even understand why the room exists in the first place but yeah. <laughs> i feel like a lot of jobs on the enterprise are make work jobs it so. does seem like a job where there's a lot of like online browsing and, and solitaire possibly involved. And then you hear right. the swish of the doors and you flip over to the stars and you're like, uh, right. yeah, oh yeah, I'm working. Like, what does <laughs> O'Brien do all day? That's, you know, I was, <laughs> no wonder he picked a new job because like he had to be so bored half the time. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> every, every uh, dirty replicator he's cleaning out on, uh, on Tarek Noir, he's like, I should have never left that transporter room. I had it so good. Well, Anson Knapp, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am the Alex Knapp. Uh, and uh, I'm also, uh, you can read my articles at uh, Forbes.com slash sites slash Alex Knapp. All right. Well, thanks again for joining me. All right. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Yes, and we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Sonia.